Is there anything you can do that God cannot forgive? Is there any type of sin, any level of sin, such a depraved life that is so bad that God cannot forgive it? Sometimes we weigh ourselves down with so much guilt, so much anguish for decisions in the past. Sometimes we, as we make mistakes throughout our daily lives, we tell ourselves there is no way that any God could forgive me of this. But is that really what the Bible teaches? One of the passages in the New Testament that often gives us grief, especially if we are weighed down with guilt, is 1 John chapter 5, verses 16 and 17 where John talks about the sin that leads to death. And John says, if you see your brother committing the sin that leads to death, don't pray for that guy. And we ask ourselves, have I committed that sin? If you have your Bibles with you this morning, please be turning to 1 John chapter 5. And we want to look at what God has to tell us here in 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. And what we want to do this morning is think about what is the focus of this passage. What, if anything, can we know about the sin that John has in mind as he writes this? And then we want to understand how we might be able to practice this passage. So let's begin in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13 and understand what is the focus of this passage. Let's read verses 13 through 17 and then back up and look at verse 13. John says, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. If anyone sees a brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask, and God, for him, will give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make a request for this. As we look at this passage, it's easy for us to focus on the last few sentences. That there is a sin that leads to death, and if we see a brother committing that sin that leads to death, we should not pray for that brother. And when we do that, even though that's true, that what John is saying is there, when we focus only on those last two sentences, we forget or we miss what John is really saying in this passage. John, by the, inspiration of, by the inspiration of God, is writing this scripture. And John says, here is my purpose in writing all these things to you in this letter. The purpose of my writing these things to you in this letter is so that you may know that you have eternal life. Guys, don't miss that. 
I don't know what was going on with the Christians that John was writing to here in 1 John chapter 1, or 1 John. He begins his letter to these Christians in 1 John chapter 1 by saying, if we are in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with him. But if anyone is not walking in the light, he's in darkness. And John goes on to say there in 1 John chapter 1 that if we say we have no sin, we make him out to be a liar. But if we do sin and we confess that sin, he is faithful to forgive us. John is writing to Christians who are struggling in their relationship with God. Apparently there are some sins, there are some things that are just really weighing them down. And also when you look at the entirety of the letter that you and I know as 1 John, it seems that maybe they're also being bothered by a heresy that maybe questions whether or not Jesus really came in the flesh. And the two big things that John's going to talk about in his letter is that no one should deny that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus came in the flesh. John says anyone that denies that Jesus came in the flesh is the Antichrist. What? I thought the Antichrist was some devil creature that Hollywood made up. Has red eyes and can throw you across the room. No. John says the Antichrist is anyone who speaks against Jesus, who denies that Jesus came in the flesh. Second big thing that John's going to talk about in this chapter is the commandment that we have had from the beginning, that you love one another. And he's going to spend a lot of time in chapters 3 and 4 talking about the fact that no one should hate his brother. But these were Christians, evidently, who were struggling with sin and maybe struggling with the idea, did Jesus really come in the flesh? There were some that were trying to divert them away, and there were some, apparently, <coughs> me, that were struggling with loving their brethren. And so when John gets to chapter 5, he emphasizes to them, I want you to know, guys, verse 13, that you can be confident of the eternal life that you have. Again, he says, I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. He says, if you believe that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, you have eternal life. He dwells in you. And now he says here in chapter 5 and verse 13, I'm writing to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. If you're in Jesus, you have eternal life. And he says, I want you to know something else. This is the confidence which we have before him that if we ask anything in, according to his will, so in accordance by the standard of his will, he hears us. There are some people that say you should pray to God for a Lamborghini because God will give it to you. John says if we pray anything according to his will, I don't know if it's God's will or not that I get a Lamborghini. But I can pray things according to the standard of God's will. And I can know that God is going to give those things to me. And John says, I want you to know how powerful your prayers can be. Your prayers are so powerful that if you see your brother commit a sin and you pray for that brother, God's going to forgive that person. 
He's not saying when you sin, pray a prayer and God will forgive you. He does that in John chapter 1. But now he says your prayers are so powerful because of God that even if you see your brother sinning and you pray to God on behalf of that brother, God will forgive that person. Isn't that awesome? That that's the power of prayer? Sometimes we forget about the power of prayer. We may talk about the power of prayer. It's hard to live the power of prayer. For me it is anyways, honestly. I never pray as much as I think I ought to pray. I never spend as much time in prayer as I think I need to spend. There's always something I think, you know what, I should have gone to God in prayer about that. If you're like me, that's where you are. Some of you may be better at prayer than I am. But you see, the power of prayer is God saying, you can even pray for someone who has sinned, and I'll forgive that person because you prayed for them. And that's awesome for us. But it's within that context that John says, if you see a brother committing a sin not leading to death, pray for that. And then he switches things up for us ever so slightly. And he says, but there is a sin that does lead to death. And for that, you should not pray. So up to this point, what I hope that you will take away is that the context of the passage as a whole is about the eternal life that we have in God and the power of prayer that we have when we are in God, when we are in Christ. And that's defined for us in John chapter 1. But the context is a prayer. But in that context is that little tiny nugget that says there is a sin that leads to death. And that's where we get in trouble. Because we want to know what is that sin? Have I committed that sin? What, What is that sin I need to know? And so over the centuries, there have been all sorts of theories and ideas that that have been suggested by people that identify what that sin is or seek to identify that sin. Uh, Usually, they're along the lines of, well, someone has committed suicide because that leads to death. Uh, Someone commits murder. That leads to death. Uh, Augustine. Way back there, whenever Augustine lived, I I don't know, what was that, 4th century A.D.? Maybe later than that. Don't tell any of my history folks that his his date escapes me right now. But whenever Augustine wrote, Augustine said, look, you have all these physical things that can lead to death. And he said, now there are five attitudes you can have that get you to commit those physical sins that maybe what John's talking about are just those attitudes. And he came up with the five deadly sins. Lust, greed, hate. Okay? Pretty soon we're leaving John behind, right? Because we're guessing. What's that sin that leads to death? Anything that leads to physical death. What is John really saying here? What does the rest of the New Testament really say about the sin that leads to death. That's what we need to look at. 
So what is this sin? There are some things that we can notice about how John uses the words life in the New Testament and in his other writings. For instance, in, in chapter 2 and verse 16, First John chapter 2 and verse 16. John says, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And John uses the word for life, which is bios in the Greek. Bios. What does the word bios sound like to you? Biology. Right? What is biology? The study of life. And John uses that word bios there in John chapter 2 and verse 16. And whenever we look at the writings of John, whenever he talks about physical things of life, he uses bios. Look at chapter 3, verse 17, for instance. John says, But whoever has the, wor the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? I think also some translation, oh, verse 16. We know uh, love by this. He laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. And in some translations, it may say the, this life's goods. And the word being translated there is bios. He uses that word bios to talk about the physical things of life. We can see other passages in the New Testament that use this word to talk about the physical things of life. Luke chapter 8, verse 14, the worries of this life, bios. We also can look, for instance, in 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, in which Paul tells Timothy that a soldier takes care of the affairs of everyday life, bios. But when John talks about spiritual things, he uses a different Greek word for life, which is Zoe. You ever seen little girls running around with the name Zoe? Their name means life. But John uses that word to refer to spiritual life. First John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested, and we have seen and testified, proclaimed to you, the eternal life, the eternal Zoe. In John's single letter here, he uses two different words for life. And he talks about two different kinds of life, eternal life and physical life. 1 John chapter 2, verse 25, John talks about the promise of eternal life. 1 John chapter, four, chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, he talks about life. 
or John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, rather. Our understanding in the present discussion is that John is not talking about physical life and physical death. He's talking about spiritual life and spiritual death. We can die physically, but we can also die spiritually. And so when we get to 1 John chapter 5, and John is talking about leading to death, what kind of death is he talking about? Is he talking about spiritual life and spiritual death, or physical life and spiritual death? One of the key keys to understanding is perhaps chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. John says, As for you, let that abide in you, which you have heard from the beginning. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you, you will also abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he himself made to us, eternal life. And again, how did John introduce the very text that we're looking at today? Chapter 5 and verse 13. I'm writing these things to you so that you may have eternal life. Zoe. Not that physical life, but that spiritual life. I'm writing these things to you so that you can have that eternal life. How do you remain in that eternal life? When you follow God's commands, do the things that He wants us to do. Notice verse 23, verses 18 through 23. John chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared. From we, this we know that it is the last hour. There's that idea of the Antichrist. John says Antichrist is already many Antichrists, many people who are literally, as you break down the word, root word from its prefix, anti, against Christ. That's what Antichrist means against Christ. He says, verse 19, they went out from us, though they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that, so that it would be shown what they, that they are really not of us. But you have anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it. And because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar? But the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ. This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you have heard from the beginning. If what you have heard from the beginning abides in you you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. This is the promise which he, made him, which he himself made to us, eternal life. What's John saying? John's saying that as long as you continue to abide in Christ and recognize Jesus and God and abide in them, you have eternal life. And in the context of that discussion, he says, but there are people that were of us who are now denying Jesus Christ. Are they abiding in Christ? No. And what's the implication from what John is saying? 
that they no longer have what? Eternal life. So when three chapters later, John is saying, if you see a brother sinning, the sin that leads to death, what is the sin that leads to death? In the context of 1 John. The one who denies Jesus Christ. Not just anyone who denies Jesus Christ, but the brother, the person who has been a Christian, calls himself a Christian, and is now denying that Jesus has come, is denying God. What about the people that never became Christians, that haven't heard the name of Jesus or, or, or don't know Jesus and deny the existence of Jesus? That's not who he's talking about. They're lost in their sins already. John's not talking about praying for them so they can come to the knowledge. He's talking about the brother. If you see a brother committing the sin that leads to death, don't pray for him. Now notice again when we look at the context of 1 John chapter 5. He says, if anyone sees a brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give for, for him, give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. There is a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. He's not saying don't pray for the person that they return to God. What he's saying is, in the context, if you see the, the guy sinning, that's committing a sin not leading to death, ask and God will forgive that person that sin. But should you pray for a brother that's now denying Jesus and ask that God forgive the person for saying that Jesus doesn't exist? That he forgive the person that denies that Jesus died for his very sins? Think about what that prayer would be. God, this person says that your son didn't really come in the flesh. This person is saying that your son didn't really die for our sins. Forgive that person of that. Don't hold that against them. What's your avenue for a sinless life? Jesus Christ. How does this passage stack up, this understanding stack up with some other passages that we know about. Now talk about a sin that you can't be forgiven for. There are two that come to mind. Matthew chapter 12, verse 31, that talks about blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and its parallels in Luke and Mark. And then Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19 following. So in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 31, Jesus is healing people, and the Pharisees say, this man only casts out demons by the power of demons. And it's in that context of Matthew chapter 12 that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 31, you can speak against the Son of God, and you can be forgiven that, but if you speak against the power of the Holy Spirit, or if you speak against the Holy Spirit, by what power was Jesus driving out the demons? In that context, Jesus says, Matthew chapter 12, by the power of the Spirit. If you assign that Spirit, the, the Holy Spirit, to be the devil himself, you're speaking against. That's what blasphemy means, to speak against. 
You're speaking against the Holy Spirit. Who gives inspiration for the Word of God? Which gives you your avenue, tells you your avenue for how you can have a life with God. If you're speaking against that, denying that, saying it's coming from some other source, as someone who ought to know God, you're denying that path of salvation. Think about the second passage, Matthew or excuse me, Hebrews chapter ten, verses nineteen through thirty-one, especially when you get to verse twenty-six. The Hebrew writer says, uh, "We'll start in verse twenty-five. Forsake not the assembling together of your of the saints, as is the custom of some, but encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching." Why? Because verse twenty-six. For if we go on sinning willfully, after having come to a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but the terrifying expectation of judgment. And then the Hebrew writer goes on to explain, For under the law, if anyone denied the law of Moses, they would be killed, except on the testimony, on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe punishment do you suppose he deserves if he tramples underfoot the Son of God and insults the Spirit of grace and denies the blood which sanctifies him? What's the Hebrew writer saying? The Hebrew writer is saying, if we go on sinning willfully, if we deny Christ, I think in the context there, he's talking about denying Christ. If we sin willfully after we've come to a knowledge of the truth, after we've already become Christians, we've already enjoyed that relationship with Christ, he says that sacrifice no longer remains. The sacrifice of Jesus no longer remains. Why do we think in Hebrews chapter 10 he's talking about denying Christ? Because as he's describing the sin in verses 27 following, he says, who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, insulted the Spirit of grace, and considered, I quoted it wrong, considered as profane or considered as ordinary the blood which sanctified him. In other words, this person said, I don't want anything to do with Christ anymore. I don't want anything to do with Christianity anymore. The common theme with the sin that is unforgivable of Matthew chapter 12 and the sin that we commit that for which there is no longer a sacrifice for sins and what we see here in 1 John, the common theme is denying Christ after you've become a Christian or denying the spirit which gets you to Christ. John says, don't pray for that. Now remember, the context still is on the power of prayer and what we ought to be praying for. If you see your brother's sin, pray for that person. God's going to forgive that person of that sin. But should we pray for someone who was a Christian, knows about Christ, and ask God to forgive that sin of denying that Jesus died for them. God, you sent your son 
to take on the form of a human being, to die a death of incomprehensible anguish, to be beaten, spat in the face, scourged, have his back ripped open. And then say it didn't really happen. Should we pray for that? And John says, for that one, no. As we think about this passage and what it means for us as Christians today, we need to think about the connection that we have with one another the relationship that we have with each other. The focus of this passage is on our prayer life. It's on our love for one another, the relationship that we have with one another. And when I find out Zolly has blown it, I pray for Zolly out of love. And I know that God is faithful to forgive Zolly. And when Zolly sees me driving down the freeway and someone cuts me off, and I communicate something not nice. Zolly can pray for me. And God can forgive me. And that's how we ought to have a relationship with one another. Do you notice in this passage, John doesn't even say, you say anything to your brother about it. He doesn't even hint as to whether or not the brother knows that we got caught sinning. He just says, if you see your brother committing a sin, pray for him and God will forgive him. We ought to love each other that much. We ought to have that kind of a prayer life. And we need to do everything we can to encourage one another in our Christian faith so that we never get to that point where we say to ourselves or to anyone else, I'm not really sure if Jesus was real after all. I'm not really sure that Jesus can forgive me of my sins. I'm not really sure that Jesus came in the flesh. I'm not really sure that Jesus is God. We need to encourage each other so that we grow in our faith and don't get to that dark place. John isn't saying we shouldn't care for those people, love those people, pray even that those people make their way back. What he's saying is don't pray that we forgive the denial of Jesus. How, as Christians, do we know the power and the love of Christ? Should we pray for forgiveness for denying our love? We should proclaim and proudly proclaim our love, our dedication, our commitment to Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you were ready to make that dedication, that commitment, and be united with Jesus in his death by being united with him in baptism. United with him in his death through baptism. United with him in his burial through baptism. United with him in his resurrection through baptism. And if that's what you're ready to do this morning, won't you come? As together we stand and sing.